Welcome to the Way of Product Design. I'm Caden Damiano. We know design is valuable, but how can you unlock its true value and tie your design work to business impact? This show interviews product designers, product managers, and tech leads from places like Google, Domo, Divi, IBM, Intuit, and Uber to find out what makes a valuable product designer and how you can be one as well. Hey, podcast listeners. Uh, today, I have a very special guest. Um, we talked on the phone uh, once, uh, and he was very generous generous with his time, offered uh, some uh, free advice and mentorship earlier this year. Um, and we ended up having a pretty awesome conversation and thought, oh, well, let's, let's do a podcast. Today, I am talking with uh, Chris Liu. Uh, Chris, could you just introduce yourself to the listener and just talk about your career, um, like where you've been and like what you're doing today and stuff like that? Yeah. Um, Hello, everybody. So my name is Chris, as uh, Caden mentioned, and uh, I was previously a designer working in R&D for Mercedes-Benz. I worked on uh, a lot of interesting projects as uh, as an R&D sort of designer in R&D. Um, I was unfortunately laid off recently, but um, but that's okay. It happens. <laughs> it's a fact of life when you work in tech. Um, but previously to that, I worked uh, for Amazon. I worked for other like big companies and other really small companies, startups, and various different places. And um, and yeah, just sort of practiced my my craft over the years as a designer. Yeah, didn't you uh, work on? It wasn't Alexa, was it? You worked on something else at Amazon, right? Oh shoot, Alexa's getting activated in my. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> um, well, the, it was a subsidiary of Amazon. Um, it was called Alexa Internet, so it's not exactly the the voice the voice product, but they took the name from from Alexa Internet to make the the Alexa voice product. Uh, but uh, Alexa Internet. The not voice product. <laughs> oh, my Alexa just triggered itself. Um, anyway, the the Alexa product was uh, one of the first um, web analytics products, I think, on the web, and it was used for many many years by marketers and um, people people trying to learn about web traffic um, back in like the very early days of the web. And uh, I was basically brought in to help develop new products there, new analytics products, new, new tools for people to measure traffic and um, website data and different internet trends and things like that. So um, I, I had done a lot of work prior to that on various different kinds of dashboards and information systems. Um, so it was, it was sort of like a, a nice progression to go from, you know, different kinds of dashboard tools to something that's very like, uh, I don't know, just sort of like data, data heavy, right? Like there's a lot of measurements out there on the web these days. And um, uh, this was another tool that was helping, helping people basically learn about, about the traffic that's on, on their websites. Um, one of the key things that we did differently is, um, you know, in a lot of the research that we did for the products, um, we learned that people, especially a lot of new um, like new people to the internet 
they really don't understand how to use tools like Google Analytics. And um, even though it's a free tool, it's a free service, um, and so it gets used quite a lot. Um, it's actually really complicated, and and a lot of people don't really know what to do with it. And so that that was kind of the big thing that we tried to address with that tool was like, how do we give people something that's very powerful and very um, very meaningful, um, but doesn't have like the the really steep learning curve that something like Google Analytics has. Um, and I think we accomplished it, but. <laughs> But uh, at least the usability testing we did showed that we were accomplishing it. But yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, for sure. Cool. We we have a really impressive career, um, which is why I uh, really wanted to get you on the show. Um, but um, one thing that impressed me the most was when I found out that you uh, got laid off. I was like setting up an episode with you and you're like, oh, uh, just planning some interviews. And I'm like, oh no. And you're like, hey, it's all good. <laughs> like you had a really good attitude about it. Um, and uh, yeah, like, that, that that was pretty cool. Um, but you, you just seem like a person who sees a lot of opportunity, uh, just kind of being like a senior designer leader in the industry right now. Um, you know, for you, like 2020, like what are some of the biggest opportunities that you see right now for designers in the industry? Oh, that's a good question. I think for a lot of things, I mean, uh, there's a lot of adversity going on obviously right now. And um, this, it's very difficult, I think, um, to kind of get your head around a lot of these topics. Um, not just with the the Black Lives Black Lives Matter stuff, but you know we're dealing with also. I mean, we're still dealing with the pandemic going on right now. And not to mention all of that, there's you know people being laid off. You know, as as I mentioned, like I was laid off. Um, and you know, it's very easy, I think, for people to to just kind of like get stuck in in kind of like the the negative side of it, and it's it's perfectly understandable that um, that people might get sort of bogged down in that way. Um, the way I looked at at least with my my layoff was well, the positive side of this is that like I was a part of like a really really interesting time in the company, working on a lot of really interesting projects. I got I got the chance to be a part of a lot of really interesting topics, although. You know, not everything is available to the public <laughs> um, because that's that's how R and D is. But um, it was such an uh, an interesting experience for me to work on those kinds of projects. That stuff that I I never thought I would get get the opportunity to work on. Um, and as as a result, it's like I I kind of feel proud of of being able to to do that and and to have had that experience and like while it is difficult these days um i think it's important to to also like celebrate the things that you have accomplished um throughout throughout your life and throughout you know what experiences you have um because that's important right it's important just for you as a person in the industry um to kind of recognize your own contributions so um as far as opportunities for for designers in general i mean i think um 
these sorts of times where there's a lot of adversity is actually like a good motivator for people to start doing things, right? Um, if everything's working great, then, you know, there's no need for people to kind of like jump in and do anything, right? Because everything's already working great. Uh, but clearly we're in a situation where things maybe aren't working the way that many people would like them to work. And so um, this is an opportunity for people uh, to be able to sort of think about the problems and challenges that, that other people might have um, and really come up with some solutions on, on how we can deal with this. So, you know, you mentioned like the mentorship thing, like that was a, that was something that I saw a lot of, um, you know, people have reached out to me over the years about mentorship and I've, I've given my time to a lot of different groups uh, to, to offer mentorship. And during all of the, the shelter in place stuff, um, that was, it was just something I thought, you know, since I wasn't commuting to the office anymore, I do have time. Like, why not just offer my time in, in, in lieu of, you know, sitting, sitting in traffic or something. Um, and so that's what I did is I just put together a small little project for, um, not just me, but now, now I've got a couple, there's a few more people on there. I'm, I'm trying to recruit more people to, to, to be mentors, but it's, it's, it's a little difficult right now. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was just an idea that I had and just tried to put something together. And I think, I think this is a, this is the perfect time for anybody, um, to use their skills as, as a designer to start, you know, putting some good back into, into the world. Yeah. And also what I've noticed, you mentioned like, Hey, when things are working out and the economy is good, it's really easy to, you know, not do anything. Right. It's just a good time to coast. You're getting paid. Everyone has jobs. Everyone's happy and stuff. But then realizing really fast that you become, you're an employee of the company one day and then very soon you become an expense that needs to be cut within a couple weeks. Right. <laughs> um, and so I think even uh, with like the opportunity, like, you know, to solve more problems as designers with our skill set, you know, in such a time of need, you know, with mentorship and stuff like that. Um, I, I found, I found like this thought in an article that James Helms uh, wrote recently. It, it's uh, called don't just sit there. And uh, James Helms, he's a VP of design at Intuit was talking about uh, creating uh, strategic leverage in your position at a company. You know, it was about the, the article is about, um, you know, how to get promoted or to uh, increase your standing in your career. Um, and one of the things he said was that, you know, being able to handle perception with those that you work with are like the are business management in general, right? That like they, they see you as a resource, but do they see you as an investment or an expense? So a lot of companies, if they don't value design, they see design as like a necessary expense if things are good, right? Like, oh, okay, like, well, yeah. you know, like design's popular now, like we need to have designers, but they don't see us as like a big ROI generator and they're an expense. And then in a hard time, they perceive us as an expense and then they, they cut us. Um, but if they see design as more of an investment, um, that's more strategic. And I'm like wondering like if this is a great time uh, with all this 
this pan- this pandemic happening, but also like the realization that hey, like we're, we're not bulletproof as designers. We may be valuable, but we need to start maybe reconsidering like how we, we go about working and how we interact with our business partners to help them see us more as an investment rather than an expense. So like what are some of the things that concern you about maybe things that are blocking us as designers from being seen as more of a, a strategic resource, more of an investment, and like, what are we doing as designers that are making us just look like an expensive, nice to have? It's kind of a multifaceted yeah. question. Um, I'll let you unpack <laughs> it. <laughs> well, no, no, it's a great question. I think you sort of highlighted maybe one of the the core challenges, right? Is that it's often design is often undervalued and is viewed as just sort of a necessary expense for the business because nobody really knows what it is. Nobody, you know, even, you know, I've tweeted this out before, like even with all of the, the resources available, all of the literature that's available, all of the, the history of design throughout, you know, throughout the decades. I mean, design is not a new field. It's, it's been out there for, for quite a long time. And, you know, the fact that people still misunderstand it in, in today's time is, is to me, it's, it's a little bit crazy <laughs> to put it simply um, because there's so much information out there about how design can contribute to business um, and be like an important piece of how companies do business. Um, I've also tweeted out before that I think that um, every company out there is actually in the business of providing great user experiences. It's just that most people don't recognize that. They don't see it that way. Um, But realistically, that's what you're doing. Whenever you put a product out there, it's your job to make it the best product possible. Um, And in that way, like that's design's major contributing. the, the question is like, how do, how do we shift the debate, I guess? Um, and I don't know that I have necessarily the best answers for that because <laughs> I struggled with this, right? I, 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 I still struggle with it because I, I think there's a lot that, um, there's a lot of design groups out there that I feel also aren't necessarily doing design. Like there's, there's a lot of design teams that are um, really just focused on like feature production or, um, you know, just like production of something. Um, and they're not necessarily following through really on sort of uh, pushing like user experience as, as an important aspect of, of what they provide. Um, there's certainly like things that, um, design can provide so like uh there's a lot of insights i think that come out of a a design process that would be incredibly valuable um things to offer back to to a company um and i i think there are a lot of different ways in which people throughout the years have tried to sort of uh, promote these kinds of things um within within their practice and um 
I don't know, more or less, I feel like people are, are successful or not, but um, it's definitely something that we, we tried to do um, at Mercedes was uh, anytime we did any kind of um, customer research or anytime we worked with um, different teams around the company, um, it was like an important point to try and share the research, share the knowledge uh, that was behind the ideas that we were putting forth so that people understood like why we were doing what we were doing. Um, and in that way, I think it helped build a lot of collaboration and a lot of uh, like cooperation amongst the teams. Um, it was difficult. It wasn't, it wasn't always that, that simple, of course, but um, over time, you know, you build, you build up that relationship. Um, you know, I think going back to the question about like the concern, I mean, it, the the problem is just the fact that people don't really value design in the way that designers value design, <laughs> I think. Um, and it's, it's, it's difficult because it, it requires a lot of communication. It, requ it requires people to maybe step outside of their immediate role, right? You can't just sort of be the person uh, sitting behind the computer screen operating Photoshop. You have to kind of get out there a little bit more. Um, you have to talk about things that are important to you as a designer. You have to push for the things that are um, um, important for you to do your job successfully. Um, one of the ways that I've been trying to think about it more recently is not so much around like, um, you know, educating people because there's already enough stuff out there to that people can educate themselves, right? As I mentioned, there's tons of books, tons of um, essays, tons of blog posts about design that people can read, they can familiarize themselves with. Um, what I think is probably more important nowadays um, is really trying to empower organizations to think about what makes a good product versus a bad product. Um, how do you do that, right? And I think one of the ways in which you can do that is by sharing things like research, sharing sharing knowledge, sharing insights. Um, but I think we need to get past this point of like, um, I need to educate my coworkers about design. It's not it's not that, I don't think that's the point. I don't think that, that, that really was working. I think we need to think about it more as like empowering organizations to make better decisions, right? How do you, how do you get you know, your product managers that you work with to make better decisions? How do you get engineers that you work with to make better decisions? Um, these are all things that I think, um, you know, getting back to the first question, these I think, these I think are the, the opportunities that we have um, as designers. Yeah, it's less about like evangelizing. Um, you know, you, you mentioned something pretty interesting to me because it's something I've been hearing as I've been interviewing people is, getting back to first principles like what makes a great product to you like chris like what how do you what do you define as like a like a great product <laughs> um wow that's that's hard i mean i think if i'm a if i'm a customer of a product i mean i, I obviously i want it to work well right so that that's like that's like table stakes, right? Is um, the thing has to function at its sort of basic 
like the basic thing that it has to do is just sort of function. Um, but that's not necessarily good design, right? That's just, hey, it works. Um, the products that I think that have really been compelling are, you know, and not to like beat a dead horse here, but a lot of the work that Apple did back in the day was um, was really groundbreaking just because they really understood sort of users. They, they understood the sort of mental model behind what people needed from computing products. And they tried to just do that, um, you know, and it went from things like, you know, OS 10 to uh, eventually what became iOS and all that stuff. And, and these are all like um, really important highlights because um, they sort of mark a departure, I guess, from the way in which people thought about computing products, right? Um, you know, before with like things like Windows, um, computing products were things that, you know, people had to learn and adapt their thinking to the way the computer wanted you to. Um, and what Apple did that was basically so different was they flipped that around and said, well, the computer should actually understand the mental models that people have um, and try to design to, towards that. Um, and I think this is something that I th think is, um, uh, it's it, it's important to recognize because it's it's how we can approach product design going forward, right? Um, how do we understand what people need? How do we understand um, the way in which people think? Um, and how do we design towards like the future? This was the this was kind of the core uh, the core problem that we were trying to address. Uh, at Mercedes in R&D. It's like, how do we use technology to support the things that people need um, and sort of look to the future of it, right? Not, not necessarily like um, limit our, our, uh, our capacity to what is possible right now. Because if we did that, um, by the time this car ships, um, it's already gonna be obsolete. So what we needed to do was think about like, where does it go? What does it do in the future? Because um, by the time all this stuff will eventually get released, hopefully if we did our jobs well enough, if we've done you know, the right research and if we, we, we understood sort of the problems well enough, um, chances are we will have made a solution that, that will have lasted a lot longer, I guess, than than the typical sort of stuff that you might see. Um, and there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of new technologies out there. Um, and I can say this because I, I've looked into this stuff. <laughs> um, there's a lot of new technologies out there that are really um, opening up the possibility for more than just uh, the typical ways in which people interact with computers, uh, you know, voice products are just one thing. Um, but uh, there's a lot of new innovations happening and, and are likely to come over the next decade or so um, that is really gonna change the way in which people, hopefully will change the way in which people work with technology. Um, 
and these are all things that designers need to be a part of. You know, we need to be a part of those conversations, so that it's not just um, it's not just something that is sort of engineered and built and and manufactured, but you know, the human element is sort of considered as as part of how these things work. Yeah, um, something you said there uh, just reminded me of uh, like a quote from uh, James Dyson's autobiography. Um, you, you pointed out that, you know, like something that uh, Ryan Rumsey talked about when I interviewed him was that um, when you when you're hired by a business, they're not they're hiring you because they think that your expertise and your skills will provide them with some sort of uh, competitive advantage. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's not because like, Oh, I mean like they'll say that maybe like, Oh, like, yeah, we're hiring you because we need a good user experience in our product. But really like at the end of the day, it's is what you're doing impacting the bottom line. Are you making a great product that they could sell at scale? And what, right. um, and what makes, what interests me a lot about, um, you know, someone like James Dyson. So he's like the wealthiest man in great Britain and he's a product designer by training. And I think if you think about like some of the, the wealthiest, uh, you know, like, I mean like the most successful like people in the world, a lot of them are, yeah. uh, uh, either like engineers or product designers, uh, a lot of people argue that Steve Jobs is like a product manager, but he he technically was the first designer at Apple. Um, sure, yeah. So, <laughs> like, uh, but it's it, so, you know, James Dyson, like, he understands like the value of like good design and R and D. And there's like this awesome quote from his book where he says that the best kind of business is one where you could sell a product at a high price with a good margin and in enormous volumes. For that, you have to develop a product that works better and looks better than the existing ones. That type of investment is long-term, high-risk, and not very British. Or at least it looks like a high risk. <laughs> yeah, he, he criticizes like the British uh, industry at the time. <laughs> this was printed in 98, yeah. so I don't know if it, it's probably better now. But at the time, it's like he, he found it super hard to actually like innovate over there. But, yeah. um, or at least it looks like a high-risk policy. In the longer view, it is not half so likely to prove hazardous to one's financial health as simply following the herd. Def difference, different difference for the sake of it. Difference for the sake of it. In yeah. everything, because it must be better from the moment the idea strikes to the running of the business. Difference in retention of total control is like what good business is. Um, but he, he, like, so he, he touches on a couple of things. He touches on. Like, well, best bit, like a good product is something that you can sell um, at a premium price with high margins and you could sell it at scale. But in order to have something that you could sell at high price and at scale, it needs to be designed better and like perform better than existing products. Right. Uh, there's like a saying that like someone yeah. won't move. Yeah. Like someone won't move to your product unless like you are like 20 or I don't know. It's like, I'm really going to butcher this like quote. Cause I, I just remembered it, but like no one's going <laughs> to move to your product unless like it's two X like better. Right. Like it has to be like a significant like upside 
to moving over to your product. Like there has to be some re like better performance that it provides right. to justify you making the switching costs to move to another product. So like, and for example, like uh, in the, the first like Dyson dual cyclone vacuum, uh, it just, it just performed better. And if you look at the sales numbers of like the first five years, as in the market, like it blasted competition out of the way because one, it was designed better functionally. Like it just, it did what vacuums did best, uh, better than right, any other right. vacuum. It sucked, sucked up to it sucked. <laughs> it sucked really hard. Yeah. So, um, but it, it also like functionally just worked well. It provided a better user experience, you know, but you know, it's, the reason I like the, the term product design rather than user experience designer or interaction designer is that really it centralizes the shared interest of all parties. Um, a business doesn't hire, a business hires you so that their products could perform competitively in the market. They don't necessarily hire you for user experience. If they did, they wouldn't be making you compromise on user experience all the time to ship an MVP. Right. Right. Um, and the businesses do it all the time. Like I, I just got out of a conversation at work where um, it was implied. Well, it wasn't implied as explicitly said, like, Oh man, like I know that we didn't want to do this right, but like maybe, you know, we might have to like sacrifice user experience a little bit just to get something out there. Right. And I'm like, so at that point I'm like, no, they didn't hire me to design great user experiences, even though that is a big part of my job. They hired me so that I could provide a competitive advantage. So like I shouldn't be, approaching like delivering my designs or presenting my designs to the business from the view of, Oh, well, it's a better user experience. Cause that doesn't, I mean, it does matter, but it's more of like, it matters to us and the internally and the design team and that, and user experience should just come with the design of the product. Like it, you, you're, you're the one that says like, that's good or not, but you need to be able to speak to like how the, your design of a product is going to, well, one, like make it a closed system. So a good product could be sold at scale. Um, like it, it, and a lot of companies don't actually have products. They just have like software solutions that have to be custom integrated to every customer. Um, and so it's like they have a custom, technically their product is a custom engineering team that has to implement like their weird, like software service into uh, a customer, which might take like five months to implement with one customer, a product should be something that can be taken out of the box and perform that job to be done like immediately. Right. Mm -hmm. So like, I think like a good product design is something that can be sold. You could sell the crap of that scale. And that requires like good systems design, good information architecture, good collaboration with engineers to make sure that like all the controllable variables are within the product um, like within the box. Right. Um, yeah. but, uh, yeah, I don't know. It, it, like, that's what you got me thinking about. It's like, well, what, what is a good product and a good product is right. something that is adopted first yeah. and foremost. And so how do you, how do you, ex how do you, uh, explain to your business stakeholders that your work and design of the product is going to increase adoption or something like that? Yeah. I mean, uh, all good points. I, I don't want to diminish the value of, of user experience design too much because I do think it's it's a very important aspect of 
like how we define something that's good versus bad, right? Yeah. And things that, that create sort of a positive feeling, um, you know, generally are regarded as good, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very interesting because a, a, a lot of, at least my thinking around this um, lately has been about sort of the, the feelings people have as a result of using something as opposed to sort of, um, you know, the typical sort of quantifiable things. Um, you know, we're really trying to understand like how people feel about using a particular sort of thing as opposed to something else, right? I mean, sure, uh, like function, as we talked about earlier, right? Like things have to work. You know, if you're, if you're uh, making a vacuum, it has to work well. It has to, you know, it has to suck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, but when you sort of like stop using it and put it away, that feeling you have as a result of using it is very important to the product, right? It's very important to like how you think about whether this was a good product or a bad product. Um, and it's very difficult, I think, um, to measure that in the sort of typical ways that we measure it. Um, something that, that, um, that Mr. Dyson mentioned in your quote um, is he talked about sort of the long-term aspect of it. And that was something very important in the work that we were doing at Mercedes was really trying to think about the, the long-term plan and the long-term game behind the work that we were trying to do. Um, because um, there's a sort of like positive benefit when you think about a product in, in the context of its entire life cycle, right? Not just from, you know, the sort of immediate need to produce a, a feature or a function, but like, what does the function mean? What does this feature mean? What does the product mean within the context of people's lives? Um, these are all things that um, I think are part of what it means to do user experience design. And as a result, like, you know, designing products and creating good products versus bad products. Um, and so, yeah, I think everything you mentioned, I think is very, very relevant. Um, you know, we have to have, uh, you know, we have to have things that the, the business can sell at, at, at large scale and, um, and, and, you know, they have to be sort of immediately impactful on people's lives. Um, the way in which we can think about these things maybe needs to shift a little bit so that we're not necessarily just only thinking about you know, the immediate next month or two of, of its, of its life, um, you know, but maybe think about the broader sort of continuum. Um, when we, we had a lot of conversations about this at work, um, in the context of, of Mercedes. So, you know, we would talk philosophically, right. About like a car, what is a car? It gets you from point A to point B, right. Um, that's that's sort of its function. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Someone tried to call me. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you're thinking philosophically. Yeah. So thinking thinking philosophically about about the 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 car, right? And it's something that gets you from point A to point B. Um, that's that's typically its its function, right? But if you think about what what an experience is, you know, as as I was talking about. Um, there's a lot of things that happen, you know, before you get in the car and after you leave the car that are actually really important in the whole experience of it, right? Um, and if we didn't think about those 
situations and scenarios as part of the product, uh, and I'm doing air quotes, <laughs> um, if we didn't think about those things, uh, you know, we would be probably only focusing on, on the aspects of like driving and, you know, you know, playing music and, and navigation and things like that. But um, understanding the broader context is really important, right? It's a, you know, it's, somebody's getting in the car, not just because they want to go somewhere. It's because, you know, for example, they're, they're trying to meet friends for dinner. Right. And um, that whole idea around like somebody going out to dinner, well, how, do, how can um, this product um, support that activity in new and interesting ways that, that maybe it hasn't been considered before. Right. Um, because everyone in the industry is basically thinking of it as like from point A to point B, you know, they haven't really considered maybe some of these bigger, bigger implications of, of what it means. Right. Um, and so think, thinking about these things and um, these are the things that I think present themselves as competitive advantages, right? This is where designers can have um, a bigger impact. Um, the trouble as usual <laughs> is how do you, how do you like put in the metrics? How do you put in the things that the business wants to know um, in order to sort of quote unquote justify you know, your existence, right? It, it, it's, it's tricky. Um, and it's, and it's convoluted. It's, it's a long process. There's a lot of like nuance to, to all of that, I think. Yeah. The, like something that you mentioned, like in the, in this example is like, what, how, how do you feel about the product when you're not using it? Is probably like a, a big indicator of like how successful your product is. Right. Like I'm, yeah, like exactly. I'm not, I'm not vacuuming all the time. So I have the cordless Dyson, right? Like the, it's like the one yeah. that's like a gun, but you just hook it up to your wall and it charge. It's like an AirPod, you know, just it charges when you're not using it. Yeah. <laughs> it's always charged, like amazing product. And I, I always just, I always feel like just super good about it. just knowing that like I'm empowered. Like if I need to like vacuum something, like I, it's ready to go, you know. But usually like. Yeah. And I think you think, you think about um, normal vacuums where usually it's kind of like a chore, like, Oh, can you vacuum the floor? And like, Oh no, like I have to un yeah. un un unroll the cord and I have to find a place to plug it. And it's not long enough to cover the whole surface area of the house or this room or, you know, stuff like that, or the, the cable gets stuck. Right. And the cable, right. the cable yeah. has nothing to do about like with like the suction, like, right. Like the, the vacuum right. still works technically, but it's, it's, the yeah. it's like, it's solving like the cable aspect of it. And for some reason it's the lack of a cable that makes me feel so good <laughs> about, <laughs> I think it's the same thing with the AirPods. Right. And, you know, I'm wondering, and right. I'm wondering like, if that's like really like where the competitive edge is uh, for a lot of product designs, like how do, how do people feel like, a product's got their back, even though they're not using it. Right. Well, yeah. And I think, I mean, I think that's part of it is, is understanding, as I mentioned, like uh, understanding the, the product's place within the context of somebody's like whole experience. Right. Um, it's difficult because yeah, I mean, typically when you, when you release a product, like they're measuring, you know, really sort of fundamental stuff like page views or, or button clicks or, um, 
you know, funnel conversion rates and, um, you know, uh, the, the worst metric I think is actually revenue because it, it sort of plows over every, every important uh, data point. Um, and so, you know, it's like, how do you measure, how do you measure what you just talked about, right? Like your, your feeling of like, oh, I'm excited to um, pick this thing up because I want a vacuum, right? The, it, it's, it's difficult because um, uh, there aren't really like good ways to measure those kinds of things, but th those are the kinds of things that really have an impact on um, the customer, right? These are the things that, you know, if, if every time you wanted to go vacuum and you really hated pulling out the vacuum, it's like, you're not going to vacuum, right? And you're not going to enjoy the experience of vacuuming. You're not going to, you're going to, you're going to tell your friends like, Oh, I have this stupid vacuum that I have to plug in every single time. Um, and so, you know, if you have a, a very positive feeling about using something, of course, you're going to, you're going to say that you're going to, you're going to talk about it. You're going to be, like more likely to suggest it to somebody else if, if they if they're looking for a vacuum you know all the good things that um you expect really great products to do right and it's it's interesting to me that it, it comes down to things like emotion um or psychology or or um these sort of more um i guess esoteric sorts of topics that uh uh, like nobody really seems to talk about in this industry for some reason. <laughs> well, I think something that the, the Dyson vacuum, well, I mean, it's cause those things can't tie to bonuses, right? Like, so yeah. <laughs> uh, you, you can't tie like customer satisfaction to a bonus, but you can say, Oh, we increased revenue by this much. Give me money, please. Like, um, right. yeah. and I mean, I don't want to like say that's like the motivation of most people, but I mean, it's easier for HR to justify paying someone more money if like there's easy metrics. Right. Um, but it makes me, but you just gave me like a really good in, uh, insight. You think, and, and it, it's kind of been the culmination of a lot of stuff that I've been thinking about lately is like, what, what makes like a Dyson great? What makes a Tesla great? What makes TurboTax great? Is that you make something that like some, like TurboTax, for example, they've made like an adulting activity. And I mean like air quotes, like the word adulting, um, like, yeah. <laughs> like doing your taxes, they turn it into something that you actually like doing like an adulting, like something that like is just required, right. To be like alive. Right. You know, yeah. it, it's almost like farming. Yeah. Like when we created like uh, farming, like tractors, so you don't have to hand plow the field. Like that was huge. Right. You take a yeah. like TurboTax, like was probably, I mean, they're not the only one now, but I, I think that, I think they're like one of the pioneers in actually like making like the act of doing your taxes, like pretty enjoyable, you know, gamifying the experience and stuff. Yeah. Think about Tesla, like making the experience of getting from point A to point B, like pretty enjoyable. Right. And, and also it's just, it's a, it's, it's the fact mm -hmm. that like, it's so good that there's like, like a cult of personality around it. Just the fact that the, mm -hmm. the, the item, like the, the product itself is enabling, like, I mean, no one likes commuting. And I think people, we're all like discussing it right now. I think we're all like discussing it right yeah. now. Like the fact like, wow, I kind of like working from home all the time. 
I kind of like not having yeah. a commute. Yeah. You mentioned you mentioned it earlier in this yeah. podcast uh, that like you have like two extra hours now. You can actually just like mentor people. Wow. You know. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Sure. Uh, and then like, the Dyson vacuum. It made cleaning the house fun. Like whip out your wireless vacuum. You know. And um, but I think like what the problem is, and I think there's like a critique on like a lot of like Silicon Valley companies is that they're not making products that like improve your life. They're making products that make your life more convenient. Right. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, convenience is, is important for, for some things. And so, you know, I, I, you know, like DoorDash, for example, you know, it's kind of nice that food just sort of arrives at your front door. (laughs) Um, but I mean, you know, those, those kinds of things, I think, uh, you know, the, the sort of convenience economy of it, I think is probably not, not the, the biggest sort of breakthroughs uh, in terms of, you know, really great products, for example, right? Like, I mean, not to like keep harping on it, but I mean, the advent of, of the iPhone was really, really significant in that regard, that it was a, a monumental change from, from sort of previous computing eras to some, you know, future uh, future time where we have these like ubiquitous devices that that uh, that are quite powerful and and we all hold them in our pockets and and you know uh, you know look at look at what's happening now like people are using it to take videos of of uh, of footage of protests and things like that that you know nobody would have seen you know. 20 years ago right so yeah and i I wonder well actually and like what makes doordash so great i I mean yeah there's definitely like a a byproduct of convenience right but i think they've replaced like another adulting thing like having to go you want the food that you get from eating out but you don't want to leave the house i mean it's like (laughs) right i like, but there's, and then, yeah, like, I mean, there's definitely like services out there that, you know, like the food delivery, like has always kind of been around, but it's not reliable. And then, you know, there's all these like features in DoorDash that kind of give you that peace of mind that your food's going to get where it needs to get. And yeah. Um, and I guess like, I mean, like convenience is definitely good. Like AirPods are convenient, but I, I wonder if it's, mm-hmm. it. Like um, I was talking to my uncle, who's uh, like a marketing consultant, and he talks about you know like kind of like the customer story or the customer journey. Everyone likes to think that the product you're making in the customer's like story is that like the cust- like the, the the product is the hero, and he's like, no, the product is not the hero. The customer is the hero, but the product yeah. that you give them is like a kind of like a supporting character or like tool or something that helps them complete like their, their mission. And, you know, for better or for worse can make that experience of completing like their story or their quest or whatever, good or bad. Right. And so like the experience, yeah, like the customer experience of using that tool, like your product is what makes it a good product. Right. So I guess like user experience does matter. Huh? Yeah. Well, yeah, (laughs) I mean, like we were talking about, right? Like uh, when I was working at Mercedes, we were really looking into how, how the context, um, how the customer's context applies, right? Uh, Because 
ultimately like nobody's getting in the car. I mean, there are people that get in a car because they just love their cars. Um, but for a lot of people, it's, it's just a, a vehicle to like a literal vehicle to something else. Right. Um, and it's this sort of like in between state between like house and something else or work and something else um, that, you know, if, like I said, if we didn't think about it um, and if we didn't consider all the different sorts of possibilities around these sorts of activities, um, you know, I think it, we wouldn't have come up with kind of the ideas and, and things that, that we did. Um, and this is how you shape, like a product experience is not really thinking about like the database records that you need to fill out, but like, what is the users actually, you know, what are they actually trying to do? Like, what are, what are they trying to accomplish? What are they, what are the, what are the things that like motivates them to like do any of whatever it is that you're doing? Right. Um, you know, in the, in the car context, like I mentioned, it's like, you know, they're going out because they want to meet their friends for dinner or they're going somewhere because they have to drop their kids off at school. Um, and the important aspect of the car product is not the car itself, right? It's these other things. It's them going out to meet their friends. It's them going out to like take their kids somewhere. Um, and so if you think about like reframing the product around these ideas, it's like, well, they're, they're using it in one sense, they're using the car to, to have a good evening um, socializing with their friends. And so what are the kinds of things you can do to make that process really fun and enjoyable? You know, and likewise, like if they're, if they're taking their kids to, to school, it's like, what are the things that you can do uh, to make that experience positive? Right. Um, and even, for the kid as well, right? Like it's not just the driver. Uh, you could be dealing also with situations where you have passengers and things that also are, are um, in the car that, that also are trying to like have their own sort of unique goals and experiences. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the, when we talk about products, I mean, it's the, we are designing products in, in a certain sense, but we're really trying to understand kind of the broader context and figure out what what products uh, need to do in order to like facilitate the things that people would normally do mm. anyway. Yeah. It, and maybe do it in a well, better yeah, way. I, I think like the, the, the temptation, right? And, I, and especially I bet in the car industry is that sometimes, you know, like amateurs, you know, I, mean, I don't want to say amateurs, but, you know, it's kind of like, uh, I don't know people that are working on cars could just say like, Hey, customer just wants to get from point A to point B. How we'll compete with other car companies is we'll just advertise better. Right. And that's right. And yeah. Yeah. It works. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's until, works, yeah. Right? Until you stop spending money on advertising. <laughs> right. And it's kind of like a brute force way. Right. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah. Like it's not stopping at, the I mean it's almost like you have to go beyond like the the like the job to be done. Well, actually, it's probably not even the job to be done. Like the job to be done in jobs theory never was the actual activity being performed, right? It's it's that yeah. emotional need that is met when someone 
does something that they're going to do anyways. Right. Like, like they're going, they're going to get their groceries no matter what with or without you with, with or without Instacart, they're going to get their groceries. Um, with or without Mercedes, right. like they're going to have to figure out a way to travel somewhere. Um, and I mean, Mercedes usually right. commands a little bit of a higher premium. So like, what is that emotional, what is that emotional need that Mercedes <laughs> is, uh, is adding to? I have a question for you. So, I mean, like you definitely, like, I think one of the most impressive reinventions of a brand and I think like a, a, a product service slash service is like how Walmart is competitive with Amazon today, right? Like, mm-hmm. w- what do you think like Walmart did that them actually like make the experience of shopping for groceries like competitive with like how Amazon or whatever, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because, um, you know, I, I've shopped in Walmart and um, it's almost like it's almost like if Amazon just opened their f- fulfillment centers as a retail <laughs> shop. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like Amazon could clearly dominate retail if they just said, OK, in addition to like the fulfillment centers being a place where we ship products out of, like you can just go in there and buy what you want. <laughs> um I'm sure they're probably going to do something like that now that, now that they now that I've said <laughs> that, but, <laughs> um, um, but I mean, I think that that's part of it, right. It's like Amazon sort of dominated the sort of internet retail business. They took over pretty much all of, um, you know, online shopping. I, I don't think there's, um, I mean, there's other examples, right. Where people buy stuff online and you can buy, you know, independently from, all kinds of different websites. Um, but uh, what Amazon did that was smart was they, they pulled everything together and became sort of like the destination for doing a lot of like online shopping. And they dealt with it in terms of um, having a, a broad catalog of things and then um, doing the shipping, right? The, the two day shipping was like the biggest, like major breakthrough that they, that they did. Um, and it was like a complex, like business negotiation negotiation that they had to do. Walmart, on the other hand, is sort of a is sort of like Amazon, but it's the physical version of it, right? Like you go into a, a Walmart store, and there's like, I don't know, just tons and tons of products that are on their shelves, um, and they figured out a way to get you know really cheap, you know, like DVD players and stuff, um, and get them in the hands of people. Um, and I think operating in like, uh, like really small places, like small towns and small, um, uh, like small, like locales, um, was a pretty smart thing on their behalf. I mean, it's, we can talk about, you know, the downfall of like smaller, smaller businesses and things like that. But, um, you know, it sort of became the place for a lot of, a lot of people uh, living in certain, certain locations. Um, Yeah. Well, so I, yeah. And like their initial success came from like just lowering the cost of like everyday goods. I like you, you, you're just giving me this idea, like this clarity 
because I think a lot of people thought Amazon, I mean, uh, Amazon was going to destroy Walmart for a little bit there. Right. But mm-hmm. you think about all yeah. this huge investment in user experience design uh, from Walmart and how they like came up with like an efficient, like Walmart pickup, like even have like those lockers where you could like pick stuff up. But it's interesting how they, now they're not differentiating by price because like Amazon, you can get everything cheaper in two days. Right. So it's not about price yeah. anymore. It, it, yeah. it Like <laughs> what's making me pick Walmart over Amazon is the fact that the experience of having to physically go to the store could be streamlined if I could do the shopping beforehand and then like drive there the same day to pick something up. Uh, I might, I might be going down mm-hmm. a rabbit hole, but it's, it, but, you, but, you, but you're right. It's like, <laughs> like a good product isn't necessary. I mean, like the, the byproduct of a good product, like Dyson said was something that could be sold at scale at a high, high margin. And that's and that leads to good business outcomes, but that's just really a, that's really a byproduct. But like the, but what makes a product like that is the fact that it's almost like yeah, it's basically how a person feels about your product when they're not using it, right? And while they're using it, but it's ba- yeah, like when yeah. they're not using the product, they're thinking highly of your product, right? Heightened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, to go, to go back to the car thing, right? Like for a certain price point, pretty much all the cars Mm -hmm. are the same, right? They offer the same basic, you know, fuel economy, the same basic safety features, the same basic, you know, like phone integration stuff. Um, They all have the same airbags, all the same, like, you know, window opening, all that kind of stuff. Um, So what's really different about these different things? You know, um, it's the intangible parts of it that are different, right? It's the fact that I can get it in a particular color in this one place and not in this other place. It's how the car looks, you know, when it's sitting on my driveway as opposed to, you know, this other car. Um, There's the sort of like brand status that I feel like I have as a result of having this type of car as opposed to something else, right? These are all like, yeah, like I said, like they're, they're very intangible things. Um, they're very difficult things to quantify. Um, and they're very, very important to um, product design, user experience design. Um, these are critical things for businesses to understand. Um, not just designers, but you know, businesses need to understand these things um, because that's what really makes a product uh, valuable yeah. to somebody. Um, oh, man. No, this would require a lot of unpacking to like, okay, like, it's, yeah, it's like, it's, it's important because intangibles is what makes a product like lucrative in a business. It's, it's like, it's the unspoken stuff that makes the revenue. How do you tie those KPIs to yeah. these, these business outcomes? And maybe the business outcome is like, well, we want the customers, we want to have like the easiest third party payment option, right? And what does that mean? And like, how do we know we're successful if it's the best third party payment option? Right. Like, you know, and a lot of people give up and they just over advertise something. Um, They're like, okay, well, I mean, it gets to a certain point where it's commoditized. Let's just advertise it. But um, it's like decommoditizing your product is what makes it lucrative. 
And it's those untangible things that we've identified (laughs) that make every day, that make every day tasks (laughs) easier, um, are, are like a good experience. Right. And, uh, like, how do you tie those to those business KPIs that matter And what, essentially what you're hired for is to influence those business KPIs. No, no. Um, but I don't know if we want to take the time to unpackage that but yeah (laughs) (laughs) well it's hard right because i think there are you know if we talk for example like ease of use right is is uh, is an important aspect for products Um, but ease of use really breaks down into a number of different sort of quantifiable measures so things like task completion times right that like being able to complete a task in like seconds is obviously going to be much better than something that takes like five minutes, but it depends on the task, right? It depends on what it is. Um, and if you think about, you know, seconds versus five minutes, well, um, what if the completing the task in seconds leads to like, you know, 80% errors as opposed to five minutes, that's like 0% errors, right? So like, how do you think about all these different things? And even those two points, on their own, like they don't really define ease of use, right? Because uh, it could still be very difficult, even if it's just yeah. seconds to complete, <laughs> right? Because like we, there's so many different factors, right? That that are that are involved, um, and so it's it's tricky because I think as a business, you know, you're trying to measure things because you you want to like eliminate as many variables as you can, right? Because if you can't you know, as they say, if you can't measure it, you can't sort of like, you can't fix it. Right. But I think it's, it's important to understand that those intangible things are actually really critical to what makes your product great for people. Um, And it requires maybe a different sort of perspective um, Mm -hmm. that designers I think can bring to the table, Um, but it, it requires a different kind of perspective in order to be able to like effectively um, sort of yeah, accomplish and, those. And, and also, that implies that there's a certain level of rigor required of product designers to actually like see like the 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 causes and yeah. effects. Like, hey, if we make this faster, what are the consequences? Does yeah, does it make it worse if we make it easier? Mm-hmm. Do we need to add, intentionally add friction? Like, it's, it's almost yeah, it's like people think like simple means like one button, right? But maybe sim- well, simple is obviously it's different yeah. for every use case and for every product domain, right? Is like simple could be a very complex dashboard. Like, like you've simplified it as much as possible, but like, oh, yeah. what happens if I, I change? I don't know. It's just like it. You need to be a little bit more rigorous. Actually, probably, and it requires a lot more work. That if you change a small variable, like if I change the length of like this one thing, what happens? what happens and nothing might happen, but like you want to change those variables little by little so that you could, you could start identifying the causality um, of like your design decisions. I don't know. Yeah. And I don't really see that a lot coming out of boot camps and stuff like, or, or even, even college trained designers like have that <laughs> level of rigor. They think that they could just test it with 10 people and be like, this is a good product. No. Yep. <laughs> I mean, testing with 10 people is, yeah. is a way to start thinking about it, 
right? Like that's the beginning of it. Um, but I mean, there's a lot still that has to be done in order to get there, you know? So, I mean, there's, and there's a lot of companies that aren't even doing the yeah. test with 10 people, right? Um, they're just sort of shipping a bunch of stuff and hoping that it, it works, works out great. And then they try and measure it afterwards and, and, and adjust as you go. But, you know, I feel like a lot of the time, like if that's the only way that they're looking at sort of product development, um, you know, in many cases that can take even longer than if you just scheduled mm -hmm. some time to research. Yeah. I think it's just, you got to establish like the key, like, variables ahead of time with some like product discovery like find out like what the problem is de define it well mm -hmm. um so that at least you know what you're looking for when you're me making me taking measurements when you're testing things out and stuff but yeah well yeah. i we could probably yeah. talk about this for hours but we're definitely we're coming we're coming we're, we're coming up on time <laughs> I, I think this would require maybe a follow-up uh you okay? You, you after this interview, <laughs> you think about it a little bit more, and then let me know when you're ready to. <laughs> yeah, no, this is uh, one of those episodes good. where I have more questions and answers, and that's it. That's that's a good outcome still. It's just like, oh wow, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I love talking about this because it's a it's an interesting topic for me as well. I mean, I I've been. I've also been struggling with it. Like, I don't know how to answer some of these questions. And, um, you know, it's definitely been like a, a, a source of motivation for me. You know, every time I, I, I go somewhere to work, it's like, yeah, these are the kinds of things that I want to find out. Um, and these are the things that I want to do in order to understand what makes a good product. Yeah. So, so yeah. Oh yeah. Thank well, Happy to for, discuss uh, it further. Help, <laughs> helping me hash it, hash it out to this level. Uh, listener, sorry. There is, <laughs> there might not be a ton sure, of yeah. actionable stuff in here, but I hope you found this informative. I mean, yeah, it was really good. Like I, I, I'm, yeah, this was a really good conversation. Uh, just want to like highlight the importance of continuing discussions on something. Cause like this, I feel like we've just gotten into like the frontier of knowledge for both of us. And we, I'm like, yeah, hour long episode. Probably not. <laughs> probably. <laughs> um, maybe I'll be like Joe Rogan's podcast one day and we'll just go for three hours. Um, um, okay. Well, uh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> Chris, I want to ask you the question I ask every guest um, just to wrap up the episode. Um, and that is, the time machine time machine question uh if you had a time machine and you could go back um mm -hmm. if you could go back and like so if you had a time machine and you could go back to some point in your career or like maybe towards a project or something like that there's like like some a place that you you define as pivotal to your trajectory as a designer and you could change something to improve that trajectory or influence it a different way how do you change it Hmm. Well, or I mean, sorry. What? What? I'm not even sure. What how would you change? How would you change? Is like <laughs> tactics. Let's, let's say what, and then explain your like. What would you change in your career? It's really hard because I, 
I think everything that I did, even all the screw ups and, and mistakes that I did, um, they were all incredibly formative to how I am right now. Um, and <laughs> maybe there's a lot of things that I ought to change right now, but, <laughs> uh, um, but yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I'm trying to think back over things that, uh, things that I've done that I would want to do differently. I mean, I guess the, the chief thing that comes to mind is just how I collaborated, collaborated with different people. Um, because maybe in some cases I wasn't the best collaborator, um, or I didn't talk about things in the right way that, that communicated the right sorts of things. And th those are probably the moments that, um, if I was to try and sort of go back and fix those things, I think those were probably the points where, you know, if I, if I had been able to like communicate better or collaborate better, like maybe, maybe some of the ideas that I had would have been able to like, you know, take shape better. Um, but I think, as I said, like, I think all, everything that I've done and, and all, you know, including the mistakes and, and really like the, the critical errors that I made maybe in my career, um, were incredibly formative for me being the type of person that I am now. Um, and I don't know that I'd want to change that significant, uh, you know, even, even being laid off, you know, as a result of COVID, like I, I, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not upset or anything about, about kind of those kinds of outcomes. Um, so uh, I think I just have, you know, like I'm looking ahead, I guess is, is what I'm saying is like, I want to sort of like look ahead to, to where I want to go and, and, try and figure out the, the kinds of things that I want to do next. Um, well, it does, it does sound like uh, things that I've learned. communication so. is like the, that thing. Cause come on, man, if you had a time machine, you would, cause pow power corrupts people. So like, <laughs> like that kind of power, just go back in time. But so, so you, <laughs> in a nutshell, you would go back in time to, to young, younger Chris, um, with his peach fuzz and whatever. And, uh, and yeah. and you and you and you and you drop yeah. some wisdom on how to collaborate better because you projects would have gone differently, um, and I agree with that. Like, I'm it, it it's really yeah. like like the difference between like a project succeeding or not is definitely the people on the project. Um, there's so many like projects that I can think of where the la like the first person responsible for it couldn't get anything done. And they're like, oh, well, this project's a lost cause. And then another person comes in and gets it done. And it's, it's all because they just were a better collaborator, right? And mm -hmm. no, I mean, I, I, I think that's a really good yeah. answer. I mean, I, I need, I should, I, I, if it, for what it's worth, I wish I prefaced it saying like, you can't say I wouldn't change anything. <laughs> Because time, time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it stands out to me that yeah. those were probably the most critical problems that I've had, right? That it's not so much the work itself, right? It's just how I handled it and how I how I worked with other people that I think was maybe the most. Yeah, because I mean, like the most most your of skill set as a designer, like that's a controllable variable. You know, it's like your ability to, you know, design and stuff like, yeah, yeah, like you could always improve that, but like, 
you know, experience kind of makes it easier as time goes on, but like collaborating with other human beings and having to work with other beings and like perform politics. I think that's like the most stressful part of any like professional job, right. Is, and that never changes how, no matter how, how experienced you are, right. Is your ability to work with other people. Well, Chris, Nope. Yeah. Nope. Apparently, it's definitely not unique apparently, to design. <laughs> humans are everywhere <laughs> in all all different industries and stuff. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I think like uh, we as designers could uh, UX ourselves a little bit more and figure out like what what does the company need from me? And it's not me to evangelize design. It's like you said earlier. It's yeah. more about putting numbers on the board with your skill set and being able to tell that story and understanding like how to communicate that is what we were going to talk about mm-hmm. until I'm like, Oh shoot, we're coming up to an hour. And yeah. So we'll <laughs> talk about this more later. Chris, thanks again for coming on the podcast. Next. Yeah. And next time we'll crack. Yeah. No worries. The value of those like non-product interactions that make products awesome. It sounds very like paradoxical, but we'll figure it out next time. All right, cool. You have a good one. (laughs) Sounds good. (laughs) Yeah. All right. You too. Thanks. That out, Uh, Chris. Thanks again. Man, that was a rabbit. We found a rabbit hole. This is gonna be a work in progress. Well, hopefully, um, oh well, yeah. Always, hopefully, your listeners. It's nice. Enjoy I mean, it. it's not exactly like a you know big podcast, but I mean, I, I average like a hundred listens an episode. So, like that's like that's like a meetup, you know. So I, I like to think that like they they get oh, some value awesome. out of it. Well, um, but uh, no, this one no, a lot of great insights. Um, but you just unfortunately you're the guest that connected a lot of dots that I was collecting from other guests. And then I just I just went like real heavy. And I'm like, <laughs> oh wow, like, Chris, it all makes sense now. Or, or, or at least I have a better question to ask. And uh, <laughs> and uh, I I appreciate it, but like it definitely yeah. Like you, I I feel bad that I I gave you questions where you're like, I don't know the answers to these. Like I'm still working on it myself. And I'm like, oh sorry, Chris, I don't know. Want me to ask the questions? You know the answers to. I should have prepared. Uh. <laughs> no, no, it's perfectly fine. I mean, like I said, I think it's something that um, that's definitely fueled fueled me throughout the years. It's just trying to figure out these 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 well, questions. Well, definitely make our jobs easier. Figure out the questions out, and the answers. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay, Chris. Until next time. Cool. Oh yeah, thanks. have a good one. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. listeners thanks again for listening to another episode of the way of product design if this episode resonated with you please share it with your network and write a couple lines on why you found it useful and if you haven't already subscribe to the podcast and if you want to help the show grow please leave a review on apple or google's podcast platforms as always thanks for listening you have a good one